be a bit different uh, this morning. That's okay. Just bear with me. So this week, uh, the world mourned the passing of what can only be described as a legend. On Friday, January 22nd, baseball icon Hank Aaron died. In the New York Times, Richard Goldstein wrote his obituary. He wrote, Hank Aaron, who faced down racism as he eclipsed Babe Ruth as baseball's home run king, hitting 755 home runs and holding the most celebrated record in sports for more than 30 years, has died. He was 86. When a person considers the honors and the accolades that Hank Aaron received during his lifetime, one can be forgiven for experiencing a sort of dumbfounded awe. For instance, Hank Aaron was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2002 by President Bush. Uh, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1982. On the first ballot, it takes a majority of Hall of Famers multiple attempts to get in. More than 97% of the vote. And then, as if being in the Hall of Fame was not enough, 30 years later, the Hall of Fame created a permanent exhibit in his honor to portray his life from childhood all the way through his record-breaking baseball career. If you go to Cooperstown today, to the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame, you will not only find a bust of Hank Aaron in the Hall of Fame, you will find an exhibit permanently placed there in his honor where you can learn all about his life. Hank Aaron's childhood home was bought, lifted up off its foundation, placed on the back of a flatbed truck, transported to Hank Aaron Stadium, which is a minor league baseball stadium, and placed there and turned into a monument and museum of his life. And if you go to Hank Aaron Stadium, wherever it is, I don't know, you can walk in the home where Hank Aaron took his first steps, where he ate his dinner as a child. Because it's a museum there in his honor. When you think of all this, you can be excused for experiencing kind of a dumbfounded awe, like I said, of the awards and the honors for Hank Aaron. And not unjustifiably so. Hank Aaron holds the record for the most total bases in Major League history, as well as the most RBI in Major League history. He is third in total hits. Pete Rose, to many of our you know, satisfaction, is first. He's third. And he held the home run record for more than 30 years. Many believe he would still hold the home run record, if not for the steroid era of baseball. He hit 755 home runs. Hank Aaron died Friday, a hero. Every major news outlet in the United States announced his passing with their own artful tributes. While those news outlets were processing the news of Henry Aaron's death, preparing their tributes and articles to others had passed away, I got a phone call 
with the news that Darlene Jeffers had passed away. Allison and I were in the car. We had not been out to lunch anywhere or dinner anywhere in months and months and months. It was a Friday. I said, you know what? I'm, I'm gonna, I got a conference call later. We're, let's get out, Allison. So we drove and we got some lunch and we're on our way back. And Jana called my cell. Now, as much as I love Jana and Jana loves me, we do not have a lot of phone conversations together, you know. But she called me, and I answered the phone, and you could tell right away something was wrong. And I was scared because I didn't know what she was getting ready to tell me. Is, is Wyatt okay? Is John okay? Are the kids all right? And she told me that Darlene had passed away. And I know it's not anatomically correct, but really my, my heart just sunk. Like it felt like there was a hollowness in my chest. And uh, we drove to her house, Allison and I did, and Steve was already there. Darlene's daughter had called him right away, and he'd rushed over, hadn't even sent out a text message to anybody, just, just rushed over there. And, and we were both emotional, and we talked on the front porch, and we prayed together. Must have looked a little strange, just two pale, white, bald guys in the cold on a porch, arms around each other and praying. They were still calling the family in, so we couldn't really announce anything, just kind of in shock. Uh, when Alice and I went home, you know, I have kids now who can communicate and who get information, sometimes information I don't even want them to get, and so I have to go back to work, and I know at the same time I have to tell my kids what, what uh, has happened. So we sit everybody down, and and they're scared because they don't know what we're getting ready to say either. And, and we talked to the kids and we cried. And, and then, like the world forces us to do, I went back to my desk and, and went back to work and got the news update that Hank Aaron had died, which was strange. It was an odd, odd thing. And my mind, for better or worse, just started to compare and contrast the way that this was being announced concerning Hank Aaron and how uh, the death of Darlene would be announced and dealt with in the world and the comparison between the two. And the first question that came to my mind, for better or worse, was how much is a home run really worth? That's what Aaron was most famous for. That's what I knew him from, his home run record. How much is a home run really worth? How much is it worth to the world? Now, I thought it would be an easy thing to just like Google it and with all the analytics and stuff that they do now that someone would just spit out a dollar figure when I typed it into the computer, but I couldn't find anything like that. The first answer was a home run is worth one run and four bases. And I thought, well, I knew that already. That doesn't, that doesn't help me very much. So I decided I had to look some stuff up. So being the Reds fan that I am, I started to think about home run hitters who played for the Reds, and there were a lot of people that came to mind, and ultimately, I settled on a guy by the name of Adam Dunn. If you don't follow baseball, you may not know who Adam Dunn is. He's not famous, but he was a Cincinnati Red for a time. His nickname was the Big Donkey, which if it sounds like an unflattering nickname, I always thought so too. It had the connotation of a big dumb guy who hit the ball real hard, and that is kind of the way it was portrayed. Uh... 
Adam Dunn was not famous for doing anything else other than hitting home runs. And he hit a lot of home runs, and he took a lot of walks because pitchers didn't want him to hit home runs, and he struck out as much or more than anybody in baseball. It was most at bats. It was a home run, a strikeout, or a walk. One of those three things was happening. And Adam Dunn made $96 million in his career for hitting 462 home runs. So now I had an equation, and I did some division, and found out that that was $208,000 for every one of Adam Dunn's home runs. I thought, that's a lot of money. Uh, then I thought, you know, the problem here is Adam Dunn was never considered to be the best player in baseball, not even close. Hank Aaron was the best player in baseball at times throughout his career, and he was at least always in the argument to be the best player in baseball. So I thought, well, i got to look up how much the best player in baseball makes, which is Mike Trout. He plays for the Angels, and his contract is $426 million for 12 years, amounting to $36 million a year. He's on a second contract with the Angels. So he has made more than what that contract will ultimately be worth, but that's what he's on right now. I think it's safe to say that if Hank Aaron were in his prime playing baseball today, I have no doubt he would be worth every penny of that contract to some baseball owner. They would pay him. And these people pay that kind of money because on these athletes, they make that kind of money. There's a reason why they do what they do. How much is a home run worth? If you hit enough of them, frequently enough, you can be one of the richest human beings on the planet for that one skill. People will fawn over you for autographs and take photos of you when you walk down the street. They will pay you millions on top of your contract to wear their products, to use your image on their marketing, and wake up and speak at their corporate private gatherings. And when you die, if you've hit more home runs than just about any other human being who ever lived, the world will stop for a day, maybe a weekend, and write their flowery obituaries in the most prestigious news, magazines, papers, outlets that we have. They will produce Hollywood-style memorial videos to air in 30, 60, and 90-second segments. They will recount all of your athletic heroics one more time. But you won't be there for any of that. You won't get to watch your funeral from the front row. You won't gather with your family to see the highlights replayed on SportsCenter. You won't be reading the obituary in the New York Times. Where will you be? Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. That's where you will be. No matter how many home runs you hit, you will be in judgment. On Friday, Hank Aaron found out how much his home runs were really worth. I don't say that to indicate 
that Hank Aaron was or wasn't a Christian or that he is or isn't in heaven or hell. I have no idea what Hank Aaron's home runs meant to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have no idea. But I know this. The value of Hank Aaron's homers will not be ultimately determined by ESPN or the President of the United States or a Hall of Fame committee or the New York Times or all of his adoring fans or some rich baseball team owner who will pay whatever it takes to fuel his team and his ego. The value of Mr. Aaron's home runs as well as the value of all of his words and deeds will be measured by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the value of everything that you do in your life will be measured by the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be placed in the balance and you will be measured. And that is the only evaluation that mattered to Hank Aaron on Friday, January 22nd. So how much is a home run worth? The answer is Jesus will decide. And I thought of that in contrast to a second question. How much is a piece of candy worth? How much is a sucker or a sweet tart worth? One of those things that Darlene would sit there and give to all the children in the sanctuary every Sunday. All the kids, Sunday evenings and Wednesday nights and every gathering. Why did she give those out? Well, I can tell you why, and I can tell you when it started. My dad talked about when he was a little boy and he would go to church at five or six years old, that he would do what many five, six, and younger kids do when they go to church. He would be forced to sit still and listen or give the impression that he was listening. And, of course, like my six-year-old over there who's doing something with the pen right now, he was not listening not for very long, not for very much, but he liked going to church because when he went to church, there were little old ladies who loved him and gave him candy and who said hello to him and who gave him hugs and gave him birthday cards, and so he liked going to church. And there were other things that he liked, but my dad stood up in this pulpit many years, many times, and said that. And one time, Darlene heard it, and she decided, I am going to be one of those old ladies. And she started bringing candy to church. She did. That's how it happened. Why did she do it? Because she heard in that, that the pastor has an important role on Sunday mornings. He's going to stand up, and he is going to teach the Word of God and the promises of God that are going to change lives through the work of the Holy Spirit if people will receive them. And it's important that he does this even to the little children because there are moms and dads in the congregation and future moms and dads in the congregation and grandparents and Sunday school teachers and community members in the congregation. And the pastor has an important job. But the pastor's job is not more important than the little old lady who gives candy to little children. Because the little children hear that Jesus loves them from the little old lady with the candy, not from the 30 or 40 minute sermon.
and the little children get to the 30 and 40 minute sermon where they hear all of the wonderful promises that God has made to them, where they hear truth dealt with concerning all their sin and all their life, they get there because when they were little, they were encouraged to come by little old ladies with candy. And she took it seriously. You could argue too seriously. But probably not. What is a piece of candy worth? 1 Corinthians 3.10 tells us this. Let each one take heed how he builds on the foundation of Jesus Christ, how he builds his life. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is Jesus Christ. If you're building your life on anything else, it's not going to count for anything. There's only one foundation. But now assuming you are building on the foundation of Christ, if anyone builds on this foundation, 1 Corinthians 3, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, each one's work will become clear for the day of judgment will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. And if anyone's work which he has built on this foundation endures, he will receive a reward. Jesus has measured the balance of the value of all that candy. I say with confidence this morning that on January 22nd, Darlene's candies were not outshined by Hank Aaron's home runs. Little blocks of sugar were worth gold or comparatively gold in eternity. I don't know what the eternal value is of being able to hit a small ball 350 feet. See, But I say with all confidence, that skill was not outshined by the generosity of an old lady with a bag of candy. And that is the only evaluation that matters. I want to take a moment and share now a few more things about Darlene. She's a sister. She is worthy of honor. So rather than delve one chapter ahead in 1 Corinthians this morning, I'm going to try to honor her in Christ. Darlene was faithful, which is more than I can say for a great many people. She was faithful. For decades, three, four decades, she faithfully attended one body. Through up and downs, highs and lows, agreements and disagreements, four decades, she faithfully attended, but more importantly, faithfully loved the body of Christ. Well past the age when many people decide they don't need midweek Bible studies, Sunday school, or Sunday evenings, Darlene remained faithful to attend. It was only in the last few years of her life as she wrestled with the safety of travel and restrictions on her health that her participation, her participation in these Bible study groups slowed down. Only at the very end. And even then, four or five weeks ago, Darlene was there on a Wednesday night Bible study. In the dark, in the cold, there. When I became a pastor here, it's been almost nine years now, 
She was one of a handful of a very few amount of people who supported my ministry faithfully when I would teach on Sunday evenings and Wednesdays. I was 40 years younger than her. She never made a complaint or a concern with the fact that I was 40 years younger than her. Not as experienced in life. Darlene, let me be her pastor. She confided in me. She talked with me regularly about difficulties that she was feeling, both physically and emotionally. She talked with me about the Bible and the church and her struggles. Not many people have let me be a pastor the way that Darlene has. It's not because she looked up to me or thought I was just a remarkable person. She wasn't naive or stupid. She let me be a pastor because she knew the Bible said she needed pastors. And she was humble enough to let someone fill that role. So long as that person was going to be qualified and speak from God's word. She let me be a pastor. She was not too proud to be loved or cared for by me. And I will always be grateful to her for that. Especially in those early years when very few people let me be a pastor. Plenty of people let me stand up and talk. Even today, there are a short list of people who eagerly embrace me as a pastor. She always did. Many, many times, Darlene would spend time talking with me about all of her physical pain as her body began to break down over the last 10 years. That happened to be my first 10 years of ministry were the last 10 years of Darlene's life. And I got to go through the ups and downs, as many of you did, with Darlene. We would talk and pray. And she would often say things like this. I just hope that they can figure something out and that I can be all better again. Now, what do you say to a 76-year-old, 77-year-old, 78-year-old woman whose body is breaking down and she wants to be all better again? Well, very often things did improve because Darlene was a fighter and she was diligent and rehab... She lost a ton of weight late in life. She took what her doctor said seriously. She gave it her all. She had a, a, a joy for life that Christian people should rightly have. But what I would say to her at the end, conversations like that, and there were dozens, more than I can recount. I would always say something like, Darlene, I don't know if this foot or, or this ankle or this eye or this injury or this cancer is going to get better. I hope that it does. We are praying that it does. And she would not. And then I would always say, but we both know that you are no spring chicken anymore. And she would always laugh. She would always smile and laugh. That's why I said it. You can't say that to everybody. But you could say that to Darlene. And when we chuckled, I would say, but I do know that this body that is betraying you and that is breaking down and is falling apart, that this is not your eternal body and this is not your fate and this is not your destiny. And we would talk for a minute about how this is not how this story ends. And she would talk about the frailty of life and how deceiving it is. Darlene grew up in a military family. She had wonderful stories. You had to be patient to listen. She had wonderful stories. She'd been all over the world, Japan and 
all bases, all, and, and all throughout the United States, different places here, before she settled here. And she talked about all the things she did when she was young, and the different languages that she spoke, and the things that she did, and the things that she saw. And we would talk about how deceiving that life can be when you're, long, when you're young, and you feel like you can do anything. You're strong, and you feel like the whole world's in front of you, and how crushing it is when you begin to realize that that freedom is something that slowly dissipates. And in Darlene's case, you become something of a prisoner in your own skin. I could relate to that. I, I had family members. I had experienced that. And we would talk about it. And we'd talk about Jesus. Not for hours and hours. But he was always in the conversation. About how he came to defeat death. And give us hope of a new body in the resurrection of the dead. We had dozens of conversations like this. More than I can possibly remember. These were not vain ideas or myths that helped an old lady sleep at night. These were rock-hard truths that she placed her faith in, and she was faithful. Roger died, and she was faithful. She did not fall apart. I remember very specifically that there were other widows around that time who I knew outside of the church uh, too prominent, and their husbands had died, and they were falling apart and trying to get into counseling groups with strangers who they'd never met because they did not know how they could go on. Darlene did not fall apart, and she did not lose hope, and she did not give up. And it's not because she was just tougher than everybody else. It's not because of that. She spoke of fears and pain that I would never repeat to another living soul. She loved Roger and was faithful in a way just as much as any other woman would mourn the passing of her husband, she loved Roger and felt every bit of it. But her comfort was in the Lord, and he was to her what he promises to all of us to be. He was with her through all of it, and he didn't forsake her, and he didn't leave or abandon her, and he was more than enough for her. Darlene would often say to me, and she said to many of you, you guys are my kids. Your kids are like my grandkids. Just raise your hand if you ever heard Darlene say anything like that to you. She did. Those were not just sentimental ideas to her. They were true, and she believed them to be true. She loved kids. Like a mother or grandmother would. You may not have felt that way about Darlene. I promise you, she felt that way about you. You may not have felt very close to her. That's not how she felt about you. I have on my computer pictures in a file that Darlene took. Darlene went through a stretch where she had a camera with her all the time. You guys remember that? And she would take photos all the time. She had photos of everybody. She'd go to church picnics, holidays, occasions. She had photos of, of, of us playing softball, basketball, playing football, sitting down, eating meals, parents with kids, kids with kids, singing in front of the church, in there, 
various plays and dramas. She was the one who, when somebody would get baptized or somebody would give a testimony, there was that brief flash that distracted everybody from something. You may have thought that was weird. She kept all of those. They are in albums at her house. You are in those albums. Whether you felt that way about her or not, those were her family albums. Those were precious to her. You were precious to her. Whether that was reciprocated or not. A few weeks ago on New Year's Eve, you know we always have to get together here at the church. Darlene was here. She was here every year. She didn't go celebrate New Year's Eve with other biological family members. It was one of her constant griefs that her family did not serve the Lord faithfully in a local church. She was here with us. And she gathered and prayed with us, an 81-year-old woman at midnight, to bring in the new year. She prayed for your 2021 when she had weeks to live. Didn't know that. That's how she rang in her new year. I don't know what you were doing on New Year's. No condemnation for it either way. Just know she had her head bowed in a little circle in the back and was praying for 2021 and this church and the families here. And I was concerned when we closed because this is an 81-year-old independent woman who has stayed up way past her bedtime. And she's going to drive home. And I asked her, can I drive you home? And it's cold. Darlene, I'm going to follow you home. No, no, no. And so we compromised on when you get home, you have to call Allison, who was already at home, right away. She agreed to that. And I made a promise several times. Steve, just turn the Hobbit music off now, man. You're a pastor. You should know better than that. <laughs> that gum ringtone. All right. And I was worried. So she said she would. And then I went about doing the stuff that I've got to do on New Year's Eve. I'm out here and I'm talking to someone sitting over there and kids and youth are playing. I got to keep an eye on kids and youth on New Year's Eve. I was here and... And not a lot of adults were at that point in time. And and 12.30, I call Allison, and I ask, Is, has Darlene called you yet? She said, no. And I start to panic. Um, and I'm getting ready to rush out the door, and I'm going to the back to see if I can find another adult to be out here and keep an eye on some things. And I go to the back, and Darlene is in the back with her walker, moving about this fast, pushing chairs back into place, and moving tables, and picking up trash and throwing it away, and she'd been doing it for the last 25 minutes. And I said, Darlene, we have all this covered. What are you doing? I'm smiling, and she's looking at me like I'm from another planet. We have all this covered. Don't worry about this. We got this. And I couldn't convince her not to do any of it. And so, I mean, I tried and tried. And so I say, okay, you have to, have to get home and you have to call out. So she said, okay, I'm getting ready to leave. Okay. At 1.30 in the morning, she called Allison saying that she just got home. 
and that she'd put all the chairs back and all the tables up and cleaned up all the trash and the, the trash was all outside. 81 years old with a walker and that is how she rung in the new year. She rung in the new year with her family and taking care of her family. Now, from my perspective, I have seen a lot of deacons, deacons' wives come and go. I've seen more than my fair share of people who seem like they're really passionate about serving the Lord through thick and thin. And then they get to a certain stage in their life. And what can be said except they are no longer passionate about serving the Lord? No longer faithful in doing it. And they live out the last 10, 20, 30 years of their existence with practically little to do with the local church. Attending sporadically, working very little. As they tackle other things in life, drive to every sporting event for their grandchildren or great-grandchildren, travel, pitter, take hobbies, just rest. Because they're old and nobody expects anything more of them. What does the Lord Jesus expect of them? I've seen my fair share of people like that. I'm not their judge. The Lord Jesus is. I'm just a pastor trying to see people to the finish line. I would take the faithfulness of Darlene over anybody else in this world because Darlene finished the race. She finished. She didn't take big breaks. She didn't quit. She didn't get frustrated and leave. She didn't give up. She finished. 81 years old. All the way to the end. Give me that over the deacon who knows a lot about the Bible and can stand up and talk and, and, and convince people that this is what we should do. Give me that instead. I'll take that. The Lord will do more with that than the other. She was faithful. She worked in vacation Bible school every year. Every year. Through her 80th birthday, vacation Bible school, July 85, 90 degrees, humid, under a tent, which is providing more of a moisture trap than it is shade. She's working, always in some costume on theme. I'll never forget the year she had a parrot on her shoulder. A parrot. A fake parrot, but a parrot. And she was so excited when she could show me that, what that parrot did. And I thought, my goodness. <laughs> what was she doing at VBS? Leading the Bible study. Teaching the songs. Going around and witnessing to parents. And that's what she did. Roll. Snacks. And that's what she did. And she told kids that Jesus loved them by giving them punch and cookies and chips. What's that worth? Every bit as much as a sermon. 
She was there for me in VBS when I was a little boy. She was there for me when I was a young man and working for the first few times. And she was there for my children. Decades of faithfulness. She was not too proud to listen or to change. She was 20 years older than my father, who, scary enough, was about my age. When, on a Wednesday night, he encouraged everyone to memorize Romans chapter 12. She was sure at 60 she could not do that. She told him she could not do that. And he encouraged her to try. Now keep in mind, 20 years younger than her. She had been at this church longer than him. And she tried. And she did. She memorized Romans 12, which is not like six or seven verses. She memorized the chapter. She was so excited when she finished memorizing the chapter, she memorized several more. Because she was humble and could take instruction, and we'll give it a try. So let's open our Bibles together to this passage that Darlene knew by heart, Romans chapter 12. Twenty-one verses. Romans chapter 12. Verse number 1. I love this. Verse number one. I still hear the pages. I'll give you time. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Darlene did that, didn't she? We watched that body being presented to the Lord as it broke down week after week after week, service after service. She did that. She gave every last ounce of her physical strength a walker moving chairs around in the back at 1.30 in the morning. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. That's where the humility to take instruction at 80 years old comes from. But to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith, for we for as we have many members in one body, but all the members don't have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individual members of one another. Darlene was humble to serve God and whatever she could do. I never knew her to be angry or offended that she wasn't given the recognition or the teaching authority or the power that she thought she deserved. She was genuinely happy to be a part of the body of Christ and to be a part of our lives in what God had blessed her to do. Verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, everybody has different gifts, let us use them, amen. If prophecy, let us prophesy. 
in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Darlene gave liberally. She was merciful. She was cheerful in doing it. Let love be without hypocrisy. She didn't want some plaque or memorial in her honor. She wasn't doing it for the eyes of other people. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, with family love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lacking in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. Was she these things? Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Again, Wednesday night Bible studies through her late 70s, writing down prayer requests, writing down prayer requests, writing them down. Distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it's possible, as much as depends on you, Live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12. She memorized every one of those verses. In her 60s and many more. What chapter of the Bible are you prepared to stand up and recite? Be challenged. When I told my kids Friday afternoon, as we dealt with Darlene's death, is that as we were speaking, all of the prayer requests that we had made for Darlene, including, including just Wednesday night, Caitlin Asked for prayer for Darlene just on Wednesday. Didn't you, Caitlin? Yep. Yeah. She's in my notebook two days before she died. What I told my kids when we sat down is all of the prayer requests that we had made for Darlene for 10 years had found their ultimate answer. She is no longer in pain. She is no longer in grief. She is with the Lord. At the return of Jesus Christ, she will receive a resurrection body. For now, she waits in a place that the scriptures allude to, calling it paradise with the Lord. Who will return to this world in power and strength. And at his return, as Clayton read this morning. The dead in Christ shall rise. Darlene among them. 
Those who belong to the Lord alive on the earth when it happens will rise to meet him in the air. And we will be with the Lord forever. I hate death. I hate it. Some of you have different experiences with death than me. I think of those of you who served in the military and told me things that you've seen. Think of those of you who've lost close family members. I hate death. The world tries to paint death in a picture that is a little bit more palatable, a little bit more digestible. They talk about death like it's a, a pathway to life and a circle in this world that we live in. Our bodies degrade and we become a tree or... I've been there when people die. It's no happy thing. I've been to more funerals. I grew up a pastor's son. It's not a happy thing. I hate death. Jesus hated death. Death is a curse. It's a judgment. In 1 Corinthians 15, death is mocked. Not many things in the Bible are mocked. A lot of things discouraged. A lot of things commanded not to do. But for death, mockery is reserved. For this corruptible, this body, must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality... Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written in the prophets, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Jesus defeated this. Of all the religions in the world, this is the only promise that offers any hope. You find a lot of hope in being reincarnated as a cat. Sound exciting to you? You find any hope in the atheistic view that you just kind of die and nothing happens and people move on and eventually everybody forgets and then the world explodes and that's it. Find any hope in that? Find any hope in Islam? Do enough faithful things for Allah and when you die, He will decide if He lets you into paradise. No assurance of salvation. No guarantee. Salvation is promised to only one class of Muslim people. Those who give their lives in martyrdom, in jihad. To everybody else, do the best you can. Get to Mecca once a year, once in a lifetime. That will help. And every year, hundreds of thousands of Muslims are trekking across the dangerous Middle East to get to Mecca because they have no assurance of salvation. 
Jesus has defeated death. So like Clayton read this morning, we do not mourn as those who have no hope. We don't like death. We don't celebrate death. Death is not a good thing. It's okay to mourn, but not like the hopeless. Not with false promises and pie-in-the-sky ideas like hopeless people who say, oh, they're in a better place, when there's absolutely no evidence that they are. Nor do we mourn with the life-ruining despair of those who will never see a loved one again and who are left in utter destitution. No. We mourn with faith in Jesus Christ. And we live in faith in Jesus Christ. And I hope that this morning, Darlene's faith has challenged you just a little bit. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, very rarely is the world changed by big, momentous actions that your people take. Infrequently, it happens. But Father, it has been the pattern of your work in the church that through faithful and diligent love, like a stream slowly carving its path out of a mountain, that the Christian who serves diligently can make a world of difference for all eternity. Father, give us the strength and the perseverance to have that kind of faith, to be able to say, like the Apostle Paul, that we have finished the race, that we have run to win, that we've given our lives, and we've finished. Father, I thank you for Darlene's life and testimony. I ask, Father, that you will comfort us with the knowledge that she is with you and that we will see her again. Help us to serve you faithfully as she did. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.